0: This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy.
1: Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The 36th state to ratify the amendment at the time was Tennessee on August 18th, 1920. And we are marking that 100th anniversary, not just of the amendment, uh, but of a movement, one of the most important and ongoing social movements in American history, uh, the women's movement broadly defined. And uh, we have uh, with us today one of the foremost uh, experts, uh, professors, teachers, and just one of the most wonderful people who actually writes about and talks about all of these issues, uh, Professor Lisa Tetro. Uh, She's an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University. She was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I had the good fortune to get to know her a little bit. She specializes in the history of gender, race, and American democracy, with an emphasis on memory and social movements. She's the author of a fantastic prize-winning book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement, 1848 to 1898. We will talk about the myth of Seneca Falls today. Uh, And Lisa, I'm sure, many of you have seen her and heard her. She's a frequent commentator on suffrage and a variety of issues related to that. She's a historical consultant for the 19th Amendment projects launched by the National Constitution Center, the Woodrow Wilson House, and the Schlesinger Library. And she's been involved with Ancestry.com, PBS, Public Broadcasting, and the American Experience, uh, the Smithsonian Institution, and various other organizations. We're fortunate that Lisa was able to take time out of her busy schedule this week of big anniversaries to talk to us. Uh, Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm a big admirer of the podcast.
1: Well, we're lucky to have you on. And uh, before we turn to our discussion with Lisa, we have, of course, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what is the title of your poem?
2: The Pained
1: Footsteps. Let's hear it.
2: Old streets are like old houses. There are so many of them in this country, yet I know that so many are counting their victories now so many of them remembering the movements of today and the women of yesterday. I'd like to think that the streets are sisters in arms, that they too relish the giant white banners pulled by horses over their paving stones, the women converging on musty convention halls over their soon-to-be-worn paths, and the picketing freedom fighters who chanted, demanded, and tasted victory on the cobblestones and asphalt layers of old streets. I'd like to think that Pennsylvania Avenue still remembers Alice Paul. I'd like to think that Fifth Avenue still smiles at the memory of Shirley Chisholm. I'd like to think that Congress Avenue still remembers my footprints that day when I marched with my sister and mother to the state capitol. I'd like to think that deep down the old bones of the continent are cheering, screaming for justice as they suffer the pained footsteps of those still without suffrage. I'd like to think that Houston still remembers Gloria Steinem, I'd like to think that Wilmington is just beginning to enshrine Kamala Harris within its gray cells. That the chair I sat in in Poughkeepsie as we watched the convention four years ago still remembers Hillary Clinton. And I'd like to think that City Hall can still see my sister's smile the day my mother was sworn in. I'd like to think that both of us will never forget standing in the voting booth with my father as the button was pressed over our mother's name.
1: Well, Zachary, I'm glad you uh, attest to the fact that I voted for mom when she ran for office. That's very important. What is your poem about, Zachary? Uh,
2: well, my poem is really about uh, the enduring importance of the women's movement and how it's, it's, it's been intergenerational and, and how important it is that we can continue to struggle for women's rights today.
1: Well, that's such a great place for us to to start. Uh, Lisa, where do you start this story when, when you teach this subject or when you talk about this subject?
0: Uh, it depends on which story you're talking about. Um, the thing that I've been emphasizing over the centennial is that it's so many different stories um, and that we've had, and part of what the myth of Seneca Falls is about is trying to narrow this to one story, the 1848 to 1920 story, and it is so many other stories. Uh, and so, I've been trying to emphasize that we have to just take in the full complexity of the story, and I do that when I teach as well. So where I begin often varies and where we end um, often varies as well based on the interests and the whims of um, of the particular political climate of the moment we're in. But um, So I think one of the best places to start is with the amendment itself, at least Mm -hmm. for the centennial story. Um, There are lots of stories here, but the centennial story, I think we spend far too little time actually looking at the amendment. Uh, And what has been most surprising to me and to the audiences I've been speaking with uh, has been that women did not win the right to vote. What happened was that the amendment said you may not discriminate in voting on the basis of sex. So um, a lot of people think what the amendment did was allow women um, into the right to vote existing in the constitution. There is no right to vote in the constitution, and that stuns people. Um, So the 19th Amendment didn't let women into the right to vote in the constitution. It was only the second time in U.S. history that citizens had ever used the constitution to regulate the states who are actually the ones who create and appoint voters. And what it said to the states is you cannot use the word male in your voter qualification clauses. Um, And so what it did was strike down an obstacle. And for some women, that was the one obstacle remaining. For other women, that obstacle had been struck down prior, in many cases, decades prior by their own individual state who'd already voluntarily relinquished that word. And then finally, it was necessary for all women to get that word struck, but it wasn't sufficient for many women. Plenty of other state obstacles still stood in their way, so they couldn't vote. So in many ways, that shifts our sense of this both as a beginning and an end. It is neither a beginning to women's voting, nor is it an end of women's pursuit of voting.
1: That That's such a, a helpful way to think about this, and you've captured that complexity in actually a very uh, accessible way. Uh, I, I guess we should start with this question about the right to vote. Um, many people presume that the Constitution includes a right to vote. Uh,
0: that's
1: true. We'd have to begin with the, with the absence of that, correct?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think... We have to begin with the absence of that because everyone's so convinced they know what happened. Um, and so then it's just a matter of fleshing out what happened when, in fact, our very conception of what happened is, in fact, flawed.
1: And, and so before 1920, how did uh, determinations of who would have a right to vote, how were those determinations made? And and what can we say about that for that period?
0: Um, they were made the same way they were made after 1920, which is that the states had the right to determine uh, who gets to vote and who doesn't. In other words, they draw up long lists of criteria you have to meet. In 1870, uh, a group of citizens um, pressing on the U.S. Congress and the Congress itself uh, decided to use the Constitution for the very first time to regulate the states and say, you may not do this practice in your voter disenfranchisement or what we could call your voter eligibility, which was really voter disenfranchisement. Um, and it said, you may not use the word race. That was the 15th Amendment. And that was in the aftermath of emancipation. Um, this amendment, that so-called gave black men the right to vote. Really what it did is say, states may not use the word white in their constitutions for determining voters. And that was the first time that had happened. And then... Um, And then the states continue to be in charge of these things, uh, and many states voluntarily dropped the word male uh, as we move across. By the time the 19th Amendment passes Congress, the entire West is voting, women are voting on the same terms as men, and even in some Eastern states. Uh, New York dropped the word male in 1917. That did not mean all women voted, though, because a lot of those women were then subject to new voter qualification clauses that the states had thrown up starting in the 1890s which were meant to disenfranchise those black men and other men of color, uh, literacy tests, poll taxes, things that didn't explicitly mention race and thereby adhered to the spirit of the 15th Amendment, but grossly violated its, um, or at least adhered, I should say, to the letter of the amendment, but grossly violated its spirit. So um, we are still in that same thing today. We have two more constitutional amendments after the 19th that regulate the states in terms of what they can and can't do in terms of um, eliminating voters. They cannot um, use poll taxes, uh, an amendment that gets um, added to the Constitution in the 1960s. And then finally, of course, the one lowering the voting age to 18. And then there's a few other federal laws that say to the states, you may not discriminate on these bases. Um, But um, those came about largely with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what happened with the Voting Rights Act is not to just say you can't use literacy tests. Um, you know, I know you have to stop racist, um, you know, registration patterns and things like that. It also said we, the federal government, are going to come back really for the first time since Reconstruction 100 years earlier and regulate your practices and make sure you aren't actually adhering to giving people access to voting to states that were discriminatory. Um And then the Supreme Court gutted that in 2013 and took that away in a Shelby County v. Holder decision, saying that discrimination was in fact a thing of the past. Therefore, this law was no longer needed. And, you know, I wish I lived in the fantasy world of that majority decision. But what we've seen is that the states have now thrown up all kinds of new obstacles, um, you know, uh, closing early voting, shutting down polling places, um, creating voter ID laws, gerrymandering. Um, The, uh, you know, disenfranchisement of formerly incarcerated people for life, Um, you know, all of these types of things. So what we've seen, again, is that the states are now busily throwing up new disenfranchisement practices, just skirting all of the things that past social movements have managed to render um, invalid. We have
2: this myth of, of the women's movement uh, starting and in many ways also ending with, with uh, Susan B. Anthony and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in, in stuffy rooms in the late 19th century. How does that line up with reality? And, and why has that narrative become the sort of prevalent story of the women's movement?
0: Yes. So let's see if I can distill this into a short version. Um, one is Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton weren't together. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the one at Seneca Falls, Susan B. Anthony was not, but when Susan B. Anthony died, her obituaries would say she began the movement at Seneca Falls in 1848. Um, that story doesn't exist. There is a women's rights convention in 1848 in Seneca Falls. It's sort of the debut of Stanton's activism. She won't meet uh, Anthony until three years later in 1851, at which point they will become the closest of friends and allies and comrades at arms um, and will become one of the most famous feminist friendships of the 19th century. They'll die in the early 1900s before the amendment passes. And after the American Civil War, um, they will devote basically their entire lives. Uh, Anthony is now kind of free of child rearing, or excuse me, uh, Stanton is now free of child rearing. They're somewhat conflated to me those two, um, <laughs> and uh, and then Anthony never has children, and they'll dedicate really all of the decades of their post Civil War lives to that to activism, and. You know, social movements are messy. We like to remember social movements and kind of particularly women politicians as sainted and venerated and lovely and harmonious and, you know, kumbaya. It was not like that. There were a lot of people who didn't like Stanton and Anthony. There were a lot of people who thought they were a real liability to the cause, Lucy Stone being primary among them. Um, and they, Stan and Anthony got in lots of hot water after the American Civil War. They did a lot of really horrible things. Um, they jeopardized the movement in some people's eyes. And so they were in trouble. Their leadership, um, you know, which was still fledgling, uh, was, um, was embattled. And one of the things they end up doing for complicated reasons that I spell out in the book is they start um, using history to justify their position in the present. And I think this is not unique to them. It's something I think we all do. History really is about how we make you know, sense of ourselves in the present. And um, they start telling a story of Seneca Falls. And at this point, nobody's ever heard of this thing, right? They're like, Seneca Falls, what are you talking about? Um, and they have to kind of teach people this story. And part of the reason they teach it is to say, we began the movement Therefore, we are the movement. Therefore, all the choices we're making in the present in this very fraught Civil War era are, in fact, the right choices, and you should follow us. Um, And they do a bunch of other things. But really, the story of Seneca Falls is very different than the event of Seneca Falls. And what I try to do is write a history of the story and how the story itself became a political actor. Um, And I think we need to ask ourselves today, what kind of moral lessons are we imparting and what kind of politics are we participating in every time we retell that story? Because it's not a neutral story. Um, So...
1: No, that's, I mean, very well said, and it's a point that's been made, I think, by you and others in in recent weeks very well. It's it's a story that seems to be largely a white women's story in the way it's traditionally told.
0: And that's part of the problem with it. Yes, it's traditionally a white women's story. It um, elevates the vote as the kind of most important of all reforms, when many women were arguing for a very differently um, situated women's rights agenda. And um, it doesn't at all capture the history of women of color um, who wouldn't identify with this meeting necessarily. Um, So, or yeah, so there's all kinds of things that it does that I think are um, are deeply problematic.
1: So one of the one of the things that often gets missed as well, it seems to me, is is who were the key opponents who who, who was standing in the way because it does seem in retrospect that everyone wants to embrace uh, what you've described as a kind of mythical movement and everyone wants to be a mythical supporter of it. How do we understand the opposition?
0: The opposition. Um is not unlike the opposition that we often hear today to sort of, you know, a, say, gay marriage or interracial marriage or, and that is that it will um, it will topple the family and thereby topple civilization. Um, and the idea goes here, at least in this case, that um, men and women are biologically different creatures, right? They are, they are two branches of the human race and they are meant therefore to inhabit this world differently. Women are meant to inhabit it. Their particular biological role is to kind of be home, be nurturing, be um, passive, be supportive. Uh, And men's is to be, um, you know, uh, to exercise their brain and their ambition and their rough and tumble, uh, you know, constitution out in the public world. And the idea was if you enfranchised women, the opponents would say, and many of these opponents were women, You, um, you upset the gender relation of the world, thereby upsetting the family. And there were all these cartoons of men stuck with babies and wearing skirts and kind of women out in the public being domineering and looking very masculine. Um, And thereby, if you upset gender norms, you upset the family and thereby, you know, civilization itself will come crashing down. So. You know, and we hear this argument again and again and again and again. If you do this, it defies God's wishes and God meant for the family to be this way. And we can't defile the family because if we do, civilization will come crashing down. You know, and part of what happens is that over the time that this press for the federal amendment unfolds, women start voting in more and more and more and more states. And lo and behold, the world does not fall off its axis. You know, I mean, it continues to go around and family seems all right and the nation seems all right, you know, I mean, with, you know, huge problems. But so um, so eventually voting women themselves give lie to this, uh, this idea. But we hear the same thing, you know, around the Equal Rights Amendment, right? This was Phyllis Schlafly's argument as well.
1: Absolutely. Why then in 1919? I mean, it, you, you've painted a very uh, compelling picture of many strands coming together, many different pushes and pull factors. Um, certainly 1919 was not a time when you had a favorable federal government in Woodrow Wilson. So why did it happen at this time?
0: I think the reasons are so many that the ones I'll spew out probably won't even begin to sufficiently answer the question. Um, but World War One. Uh, which is ongoing in this, you know, the last chapters of this, is is huge, um, and the women's movement is yet split again uh, after uh, after uh, Stanton and Anthony die, um, and Lucy Stone dies, um, and it's split between Carrie Chapman Cat and Alice Paul. Carrie Chapman Cat's idea is with the National American Woman Suffrage Association, which people pronounce as NASA. Um, That Nassau should, um, you know, curry the favor of politicians, win over their affections, win over their support um, and support the war. Alice Paul's is uh, let's take it to them. Uh, I don't care about whether or not they like me. I want to make them uncomfortable until they concede my point. She's the more militant kind of out in the streets, um, you know, rabble rousing. Um, you know, Carrie Chapman Cat's convinced that this is going to jeopardize the cause. So when the war breaks out, Carrie, Chap- Carrie Chapman Cat gets the huge Nassau organization to throw its support into the war, and. Woodrow Wilson will say in letters and in his speeches, women's war support means that they are full citizens who are defending this nation and therefore, you know, are deserved it of, its, of its most sacred right, which, as we've said, is a fiction. But, And then Alice Paul and other people will use World War I as a way to embarrass the nation on an international stage. Civil rights activists will do the same. Here we are, you know, defending the world. Defending democracy, you know, in World War One, and we're not even granting it here at home. So they'll start reading Woodrow Wilson's speeches defending democracy and point out the hypocrisy of them when it comes to American women, and throw them into trash barrels in front of the White House. And they'll even unfurl a banner calling him Kaiser Wilson. So... So there's a way in which both sides of the movement leverage the war to win over Woodrow Wilson's support. Um, And so Woodrow Wilson will come out and um, support women's suffrage. And then there are a variety of other things going on, um, including that women are voting already in pretty massive numbers. So in many ways, the 19th Amendment is only confirming what's already happened in large part. Um, There are only eight states when the 19th Amendment is ratified that are where women are not voting in some fashion. Um, In many of those other states, women had partial suffrage where they were allowed to vote in certain types of elections, but not on the same terms as men. So that's going on. And I think there's another really key piece that we don't talk about sufficiently. And that is that it has also become palatable, I think, to pass the 19th Amendment because so many states have put in racialized restrictions over the 1890s and the 1910s. Um, And so that many white politicians know that if they take the word male out, they will only be largely enfranchising, although not exclusively white women. Um, And I think we don't talk enough about the ways in which the simultaneous history of disenfranchisement going on at this same time leads to, I think, the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Um, So we can't isolate gender as a variable in many ways. Um, And there are lots of other reasons why it goes through, but, um, but those would be my top four
1: no and, and and that really uh, captures i think some of the central dynamics that you and others have written about this tension between uh gender and race is that something that continues after
0: 1919 oh yeah um yeah i mean it continues straight up until today as Zachary's poem so eloquently uh, illustrated. So uh, yes, it absolutely continues. It's rife throughout the movement. Um, And one of the things that people like Martha Jones and others who are coming out with terrific books right around now are saying is, we have made a mistake to only look for women of color's activism inside white suffrage organizations. You know, where are the women of color? That is hugely important to locate them and see what their voices and their agendas are. But There's been a lot of work now to also trace women of colors organizing on their own terms, which shows up in places where, you know, white suffragists are not organizing. So that activism is going on. And those organizations and those women in the wake of 1920 will come to the flagship suffrage organization saying, many of us not all of us but many of us still can't vote because of these other restrictions and those white suffrage organizations the leadership of the both nasa and the national women's party will say we don't care i mean literally they will say we don't care our fight is over we've won our fight um and your problems are your problems that's a race issue you know As if women only live with race issues and not with gender issues as well. You know, we've finished the gender fight, um, which goes to show the degree to which they're they're envisioning gender white here. Um, And so they will they will abandon the suffrage movement and um, and let these women sort of go off and, you know, fight in league with black men and in league with other men of color who are having their votes stolen as well. Um, And they will continue to push. And be really important in the enactment of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is in some ways the culmination of um, the story of women of color.
1: It, it's striking to me because what you just described also resonates with the ways in which we've rewritten in the last 10 to 20 years the history of the civil rights movement, right? Which yes. is now, you know, in many ways, built around the work of, of African-American women and other women of color in various communities. To what extent are the, the women who are not included in the traditional women's rights organizations, to what extent are they instrumental in what we come to call the civil rights movement?
0: Uh, Deeply, always. Um, Yes. And I think, you know, plenty of scholars have underlined this point again and again and again and again, um, that women are consistently present in civil rights organizing, not only just consistently present, but essential uh, and overlooked. And
1: so do you see the 19th Amendment then as a, as a civil rights amendment? Or how how do you frame it? It's obviously not an amendment that creates a right to vote that still doesn't exist. Do you right. Would you put it in the context of a broader civil rights struggle? How would you frame it in that sense?
0: I would frame it as the kind of narrow ways in which white women's organizing has often just organized around whiteness. Um, so to me, it's very much the kind of uh, narrowness of feminism that forgets to think that the issues of white women are not the issues of all women. Um, because really it just goes after the word male, right? Only white women can really isolate that variable. Yeah. It goes after the word male. And then when other women come to them and say, you know, We are still not voting. They say our fight is done. So to me, the the fight for the vote is, um, you know, interesting and laudable and essential and helps all women in many ways because all women need the word male removed. But I would say that the activists themselves, um, I wouldn't put this as part of a civil rights story. Um, If anything, I think it's hostile to a civil rights story.
1: And so I, I think that's a great spot for us to talk about the present then, if, if, if you're willing. To. Yeah. What are the lessons then at this anniversary moment, which for whatever reasons draws our attention often inaccurately to these uh, milestones in our history? What, what are the lessons you think we should take away, especially you know, in a moment when many people feel that our, our rights are, are under attack?
0: They are under attack. They don't feel that it is factual that they are under attack. Um, We are in the midst of one of the um, largest campaigns of voter suppression or voter disenfranchisement since before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I think what we have to remember is the right to vote has still not been won, which is what's partly what's making this um, voter disenfranchisement campaign in the states possible. Um, And uh, also that uh, the 19th Amendment left state governance over voting in place. Um, And so states can dream up all kinds of new ways to disenfranchise, and that's exactly what they're doing right now. And for me, the anniversary has been a chance for us to both dispel the myth that Americans have the right to vote, which I think lulls us into a sense of complacency and also a sense of um, kind of myopia around the disenfranchisement that's taking place right now. And secondly, to give us a chance to realize that fight is ongoing, that it's not finished, I think the 1920 story wants us very much to put this in the past when it is alive and well in the present. And so also gauge the health of our current democracy and ask ourselves as citizens, we've been handed a past. What do we intend to do with it now?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and a question I get a lot, and I'm sure you get as well, is for those who, who believe everything you've said, and I think it's what you're saying is incredibly powerful and, and in many ways obvious, it's in plain sight, Um what is it that social movements today, what is it that our students and those who are listening to us who care about Black Lives Matter and care about voting rights and are out there and you know, are protesting in front of the postmaster general's home, what are the lessons they should take away, positive and negative, in the formation of their movement today?
0: That voting alone has never been sufficient, um, that we absolutely must have social movements and voting together. Um, and in fact, it is social movements that have expanded and turned this country into a democracy, which is something the founders never intended. Social protest has created this country into a democracy, and social protest is the only thing that will preserve it as a democracy.
2: On that note, um, we've seen a dr- dramatic increase in recent decades in in women voting. But how come that hasn't translated in the same way to Uh, equal representation in political office. We still see, particularly in Congress and certainly in the presidency and vice presidency, a total lack of representation of women.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, sexism and racism are alive and well. Um, And so I think the idea that um, a woman is capable of governance, I think, is still um, something that many Americans are deeply skeptical about.
1: And uh, do you see the um, selection of Kamala Harris as a vice presidential candidate? Do do you see that as a a milestone? And and how can we use that, whether one likes her or not? How can one use that to advance a more inclusive vision of of participation in our democracy?
0: Oh, it is unquestionably a milestone. Um, I mean, it is... It's incredible. Um, And it is something to celebrate in all kinds of ways, regardless of how you might feel about her. But I might also point out that um, we hold female politicians to a standard that we do not hold white male uh, kind of aging politicians to. They must be perfect. They must be, you know, um, they must be all these things that we don't demand of our white male politicians. And so I am deeply skeptical of a interrogation of her that is not equally visited upon an interrogation of, uh, you know, aging white male politicians. So um, I'm not saying we shouldn't interrogate. And I'm also saying, um, I'm not sure why a woman has to be the perfect candidate, particularly a war- woman of color. Um, you know, I was li- listening to Brittany Cooper the other day, who was very rightly saying, like, you don't get into mainstream politics and make your way up to the vice presidency if you are not somehow playing the game, right? You don't come in with purity, right? That's You would never get to that spot if you did. Um, and let's get some access and representation at the table and then let's see what we can do with it. Um, so I tend to take a more pragmatic view and say, um, you know, she is certainly uh, a more progressive candidate than um, than many of the white men who've run for office. So
1: right, right. Well, and and your point hits home to me because uh, Allison, my wife, as you know, is is on the city council here in Austin, elected office, mm-hmm. and and I just notice, uh, and I should have seen this before, but I didn't. But I notice now watching her on a day to day basis how she's held to a different standard, and it's a much more critical standard, and, and it comes from from men and women. Yep, yeah, absolutely. It's striking from everything from just interpersonal interactions to policy debates to every single issue. Yep.
0: You know, and there are there are studies done of like who gets interrupted most on the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's it's the women justices. And they're interrupted mostly by the other male justices. Right. So, you know, even, you know, that it is alive and well, the sense that women are held to a different standard and that they shouldn't speak as much and they shouldn't take up as much space and they shouldn't, you know, so.
1: So the, the, cl- the question I wanted to close on, Lisa, and I've been thinking about this uh, since we've planned out this this podcast episode, uh, what are the sources of hope today? I, I find that when I talk to uh, students and other young people, um, they really want to be hopeful. They're not as knowledgeable as they will be after they listen to you and read read your work, but, but they share a hope for a more inclusive future. And I, I think there's a lot of... Goodwill out there. Uh, What are the sources of hope today? And are you hopeful?
0: I am hopeful. Um, I don't, I've conceded defeat if I give up hope. um, And I refuse to do that. And what's hopeful to me is both the past that people have overcome uh, and changed really dire situations in our country through this process of combination of voting and social protest. And um, also young people. Um, I have to say being a teacher in a college classroom has saved my sanity. Um, they are uh, young people I find to be just incredibly um, just inspiring. Um, and just recently my 10 year old daughter, uh, we were in a city park and there were signs up on the bathroom that said you had to use your gender assigned at birth. And my 10 year old daughter was enraged by this and she went and got taper and paper and tape and covered it all up. And, uh, you know, I mean, just to think that young people insist on a world that has the kind of diversity, um, and the kind of variety that we embrace and that we affirm, um, which I think so much of the campaign of voter suppression is about denying and erasing. I just feel like the numbers are against them and they can't, they, they can't win. So,
1: Which is why they try to suppress the vote, right? You don't do That's that right. unless you think you're, you don't have yep. the numbers.
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, all evidence would suggest that higher turnout and, you know, more demographic diversity, uh, you know, leads to, uh, you know, more voter turnout for Democrats. And so, you know, Barack Obama had one of the, you know, most um, robust get out the vote campaigns, uh, you know, in, in U.S. history in the 20th century. And it um, it really diversified the electorate and brought in so many um Folks who were not voting prior, who come from different demographics, and that scared the hell out of the Republicans, and they are trying to shut that down. Mm-hmm. Which is why we have this campaign of voter suppression right now.
1: Right, and and I think one of the most useful uh, ways to to turn this anniversary into uh, a moment of progress is is just what you said to have these conversations and to remember that that there is hope because so much has been overcome in the past and it can be overcome today also.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely.
1: Zachary, does this inspire young people? Do you think that um, we can see the 19th Amendment as, as inspiration for an opening toward a more inclusive society today? Does that move young people like you? Well, I can't speak
2: to the experience of of young women uh, and girls my age, but I, I definitely think that what this uh, re-examining of the history of the 19th Amendment and the women's movement shows us is that... That change takes a really long time, but that we can actually make enormous progress if we keep working and we keep fighting for different causes, but also that change is messy and that it really does take a long time. So I think we need to be wary of people who offer quick solutions, but at the same time, keep up the fight and, 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 and keep trying to achieve the sort of maybe unattainable dream, but of equality for everyone and and suffrage for everyone.
1: Very well said, Zachary, that that the celebration is in many ways a call to arms, isn't it? Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time, especially when you're in such demand right now. Thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom on the past and the present and future. It's, It's great having you on. It's been wonderful to be with you both. And Zachary, thank you for your poem. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.
0: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com.
2: Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.